Welcome to the BIV interview. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver. My guest today is a notable Canadian businessman, mining financier, philanthropic uh, leader in our country, Frank Justra. Born in Sudbury, home of the Big Nickel. I used to spend summers with my grandparents in Valcarin, which is kind of near, uh, near there. Um, father was a nickel miner who introduced his son to a broker. And what happens next, of course, is Canadian financial history. A securities course, an early start at Merrill Lynch, a broker on the Vancouver Stock Exchange, then a transformational role at Yorkton Securities, and the founder of Lionsgate Entertainment, former chair of Endeavor Financial. I could spend 15 minutes on your resume. Uh, loads of other entries. Um, most recently, CEO of the Fiore Group of Companies and one of the world's significant philanthropists now uh, locally, uh, certainly at first, now globally, in concert with uh, his very good friend, former U.S. President Bill Clinton. Uh, so I look forward to our discussion. Welcome you. Thanks. Great. Um, was there a turning point when you're, you know, you're, you've done all of this business and you begin to switch it back, you turn the lens back and you go, now, um, now it's a different kind of helping time? Yeah. I don't know if there was one pivotal moment. I don't think it happened quite like that. I think it was more just a slow realization of things. And it's that, that I think the biggest thing for me is that very slow, painful realization that no amount of money is going to buy your immortality. And, and I <laughs> yeah. keep going back to that. You can't issue. take it with you? You can't. And, and yeah. uh, people say that, they repeat that. Not a lot of people think that through and believe that the reality of that situation. When you really focus on, you get re real clarity on that one issue, that you can't take it with you, that it's also meaningless in the end, that's when you start to think about purpose and other things. Yeah. What, what were those purposes? Were you able again? Did you have like a, a meditative moment or two there where you started to go, okay, so purpose for me means? Giving back, you know, uh, realizing that I was very lucky in life. You know, I just got lucky. You know, I worked hard, but a lot of people work hard. We didn't get I mean, luck is not the whole thing. It isn't, but, you know, it does play a role. It's yeah. where you're born. It's when you were born. It's time and place and, you know, things happen. And, yeah. and, and I do believe in hard work, but I think a lot of people work very hard around the world. Uh, Opportunity is not evenly distributed, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, sometimes you're just born at the right place. But, you know, your father was a driller and a blaster. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you could be back in those nickel mines in I, I could have been. And, you know, it just happened to be here in British Columbia. And I happened to read a book that, you know, kind of changed my way of thinking. And yeah. I happened to not like being poor. <laughs> and poverty is a great mot motivator to, you know, I just didn't like the idea of not having money when I was very young. Yeah. So I, I, I tried to work very hard to, to make, you know, change that. Yeah. Are you shaped by, uh, do you think, um, understanding inequity? Yeah, no, I think that that goes back to my childhood. You know, yeah. we grew up in um, Italy and Argentina, and I was nine or 10 when I came to Canada. Um, and, you know, you, you, I saw inequality at a greater scale in, in Argentina than, you know, than existed in Canada at that okay. time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always noticed that, you know, there were, there were people out there that had it a lot worse off than we did. And it didn't sit well with me. It just, it, it bothered me from the very, very beginning. And I remember when I was about 13, for some reason, and I can't remember what inspired me to do this, but I uh, signed up for the Foster Parents Plan of Canada, where, you know, you sponsor a kid overseas yeah. okay. and you write letters to each other and you send like $10 a month or whatever the number was. And I, and I did it and I, and I thought, you know, this is what I need to do. And I think I was doing it off a paper route or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we all had paper roots as kids. Yeah. Those were, was that one of your first jobs? 20 bucks a month. That's actually pretty good coin. Well, it was. You know, $20 yeah. a month when you're 11 what was or the 12. Paper? Sudbury Star? Va no, no, no. Vancouver Sun. Vancouver Sun. Yeah, oh, out, okay. in, uh, out in the valley. I was oh, okay. had my little bike and I just run around and deliver it in the yeah. afternoon. I actually ascribe some of the decline of newspapers to the fact that they no longer have children who are their carriers. Yeah. Because you could never, who is ever going to say to you, I'm sorry, little Frank, um, I can't take my paper anymore. No, no, not a lot of people did that. And it was always great collecting because you had to go knock on people's doors. Yes, and, exactly. And, you know, they, they paid and very few didn't pay. You know, was, I, as a paper boy in Toronto, did you get any decent tips? Christmas time. 
I remember at Christmas time when I used to go get my money, I'd get, you know, a dollar or something. I mean, about a dollar in those days, that was like, you know, yeah. 10 chocolate bars. No, no, we're about the same age. And <laughs> I remember I remember a dollar would be big dough. Yeah. Uh, I used to splurge at, uh, on payday. We used to go to the local uh, store and buy, um, uh, I think we'd buy Fanta, um, yeah. salt and vinegar potato chips, and an O'Henry chocolate bar. And that's the way we celebrated. Yeah. Well, you're not 300 pounds, so obviously no. you found another way no, to, yeah, to I changed work, my diet. work in your diet at some point <laughs> and all that. Uh, but but getting back to that point about, you know, about inequity and all that, um, you you started a lot of the great philanthropy, I think, in this city um, around things like homelessness. Yeah. It's, uh, do you have any thoughts? How are yeah. we, do you have any thoughts about how we're how we're doing and how we're getting at this? Well, it's it's being addressed. At least it was. It's being addressed now since we started the Street to Home Foundation some eight, nine, eight or nine years ago. Um, there has been a significant change in what it was. I mean, it's certainly still an issue, and that's. Yeah. I don't think it will ever go away. Homelessness is an issue that you know, unfortunately, it's very difficult to solve completely. Yeah. But we have made an incredible difference, and it was because. Um, we saw that the only way to get the job done properly was to do a collaborative effort between where you had the city of Vancouver, the province of British Columbia, private uh, donors all coming together and local NGOs all coming together and buying into one plan. Yeah. And that was really the philosophy behind Street to Home. And I think it's the philosophy in almost everything we do today is how do you solve a problem in a sustainable way as opposed to just throwing money at parts of the problem. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that you say that because one of my criticisms of course of the city has been that it's it's tried to suggest to people that it can do things alone and yet history always shows that anything that a city tries to do in a big way requires mm-hmm. large collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's very true and I think it's very true with respect to, you know, the role that businesses have to play and uh, business leaders have to play in their own community. And I think it, you know, it applies both in your own community. It applies in international stuff too. Yeah. Um, do you have a, do you have a, 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 an idea about how it is that we're doing with the homelessness situation in the city around it, it, managing it? Because it, every year it just seems to spread and come out sideways in different ways. Well, it, from what I can gather, you know, we have the unfortunate benefit and problem of being a very desirable place to live in. Um, mm-hmm. And people come from other parts of Canada because we have mild weather here and it's it's not, you know, as cold as it is in Toronto yeah. in the wintertime. So I think as we, you know, place homeless people in uh, safe and secure housing with services, that's fine. We can continue to do that. But, you know, the population grows, people come here and it's it's hard to stay on top of it completely i mean it's just not it's going to be i think an ongoing problem that we have here in vancouver you know in in working abroad as much as you have and as, as understanding uh the wider world in the way that you do um you must have turned your thoughts many times to what takes place with our own indigenous population and and what it is that we we have as a, a societal obligation around around dealing with things like reconciliation uh do you you know are we doing well i don't know i I, i'm not going to pretend that i'm really on top of that subject matter because i'm not and i probably it's one of the areas that i think we we need to look at as a foundation um in terms of participating here in canada i've you know you can only do so much when (laughs) you're a I'm a, I'm a relatively small foundation by global standards. Right. Um, so we've chosen our areas of interest uh, very carefully uh, in areas where we think we can make an impact and where we can change the model and do things a little bit differently, a little bit more efficiently, a little faster, uh, and actually make a, a sustainable change. And so those areas, you know, in Vancouver we chose homelessness and that's a big issue you know mm. that, that took a number of years for us to 
put that plan into place and implement it. With people like Milton Wong at the time, right? At the time, yes. He was one of the early uh, people that came in on the foundation. And there were others too, other Mm -hmm. leaders here in the city. But I think that, um, I mean, I I just haven't spent enough time on that subject. And the rest of my time has been spent on international issues, conflict resolution, poverty alleviation, refugees, which is a very big global issue. And there's only so much I can do. No, but you identify those three. And I want to explore all of them with you because I, uh, again, I want to find out a little bit about your motivation in choosing those among other issues that are there mm-hmm. to address and, and applying the resources that you have through your foundation. And you have great resources to do it. Uh, uh, you know, I've met some people around your team around all this too, and you hire some extremely sharp people worldwide in order to manage uh, some of what you're doing here. Uh, where Tell me a little bit individually about where some of these things came. The, yeah. the poverty alleviation, I think we've, we've talked pretty well about. And refugee issues. Yeah. Where, what, that came what, out of the blue. I wasn't, it wasn't something that was planned. Yeah. And uh, three years ago, I was asked by a very good friend of mine who is now my partner in a lot of the refugee work that we do, a lot of the initiatives that we do, uh, and certainly was there early on. Um, his name is Ahmed Khan, and he, he was desperately trying to get me to get involved. And I was quite honestly resisting it only because I had so much on my plate already. Mm-hmm. And I was going, you know, I can't take on another big issue. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, but he eventually talked me into it. And I, and I did go to Lesvos to, to witness for myself, to try and understand what was going on because there was some coverage of the issue in, in, in the media, but not enough. And when I got there, it just, just changed my whole perspective. The it camp, changed so, it, it. The camp will change in, your life, right? No, and, and it wasn't just a camp. It was mostly an encounter with a boat full of refugees in the middle of the night ah. coming mm. in, you know, un, you know, as we were driving home and it was totally unexpected and we were alone on this beach and, you know, we're ha- helping to empty a boat, you know, we're in the water, waiting in the water, holding the boat, lifting people out of the boat and people are crying and, you know, praying and rejoicing and, and you know, and this woman hands me her, two-year-old toddler and I'm holding this kid and it just that's that was in a nanosecond I was going this is an unbelievable situation I can't I don't even know how to communicate that to people it just affected me so deeply because I have kids and Mm -hmm. I kept thinking oh my god what if what if this were me and that's the issue I mean 60% of these refugees are women and children you know escaping you know death destruction and you know just trying to keep their kids safe and how do you square your sentiments, that episode, with what you're seeing in the way of the kind of coarse rejection yeah. of, of, of this in, and, and a lot of nationalism yeah. that has ensued. What, what is behind that? Is there's, it- you know, there's so much behind it. I think just it, it's sad that, it's, that the issue is being weaponized. <laughs> in essence, by those that feel they can get some political advantage by making this an issue, okay? That's obvious to everybody. Uh, it's happening in the U.S., it's happening in Europe, um, and it's very sad it's because- It's not exactly it, absent in Canada either. Well, it, it, yeah, but it's not yeah. as profound an issue here in this country. We're not, you know, we're not fighting about it every day in the newspapers. Yeah. I mean, it is an issue here too, of course. But I, I think at the extremes, you've got what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in Hungary and, and, and places, other uh, other parts of Europe, where the immigration issue, because it was poorly handled in Europe, um, became a, a way by which po- certain politicians could use it as a means to put fear into people and provide provide a solution, quote, quote, you know, that I, I'm your savior, you know, we're going to be, become more nationalistic. Nativism and xenophobia <laughs> was rampant. Yeah. And, um, and I think it, it shows that it, it does work to an extent, that, that approach. Yeah. And so that's why it's copied. And that's why I think it's happening in the U.S. You, you know, the current administration in the U.S. is using this as one of its main issues. Yeah. And there's so much false information being peddled and it's sad. It's sad that, you know, these poor people that are escaping either war or they're escaping security issues, gang wars, you know, all sorts of things that are going on in their home countries. And they're just looking for a better life for their children 
are treated so inhumanely. And and I think that that is the sad part. I used the indigenous uh, uh, reference earlier um, for a purpose in this, which is that, you know, we, we probably in this country don't sufficiently understand our history. And what I don't understand, what really beguiles me with the United States in particular is how it is somehow walking away from its history in failing to understand how it is a country built by those coming to its shores, you know, it, it's enough that it, it has turned its back on those who were there originally, mm-hmm. but its settlers are all from other places. Yes, but the harsh reality is those were white settlers from Europe, okay? And they are acceptable um, by a large part of the population. The problem is when you get settlers that are coming from countries where people are of different color. Mm-hmm. That and that's the harsh reality. It's, you know, it's it's okay. It's okay if you came from Europe, and 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 it's sort of the administration doctrine right now that you know there are certain people that we will welcome into our country, and they are white. Yeah. Uh, and that's and when you make that policy, it it really is a very dangerous route to, to go down, and that's what's happening. Yeah. When you take a look at the United States and you see uh, a, a climate now that. Um, on the one hand, is also calling for things like reparations for slavery uh, and uh, one that is, uh, on the other extreme, hostile to the very idea of having uh, people from Mexico coming across its borders. Is America too far gone? My honest opinion, I think it's almost too far gone. I think that America is so divided right now and the divisions are becoming even more accentuated. Like it's just, it's getting worse and worse every day. There are basically two camps and you're either in one camp or the other and there's no discourse. There's no no ability to communicate. It's just very hard positions. Um, and it's a war environment between, between the two philosophies of, of politics. And I think that unfortunately... Um, and there are reasons for it, and we can get into it if you like. You know mm. why we're here in the first place, in my opinion. And um, why do you I, think why? why well, we? I think I think that the, the largest problem is the wealth gap and the growing wealth gap. I think inequality and how it has if that gap has evolved very quickly over the last twenty years is playing a major role. The reality is that people, most people. And, and we've seen this throughout history, okay? They f- when they feel disenfranchised, they feel like they're falling behind, that you know they're not getting anywhere. They're getting poorer in terms of their um, spending power. You know, their earnings aren't going up. And then they look and they see other people becoming wealthier and wealthier. They feel they've been screwed over. They just don't understand how it happened. Mm-hmm. There's not enough uh, knowledge by the public to really understand how you got there in the first place. So when you don't understand this, the root of the problem, as most people don't, it's easy to be manipulated to believe that it's some other issue that's causing your you problems. You target other people. You target Well, you can target immigration, which yeah. has been done very successfully. You can target trade policies. Mm-hmm. You can target a, a lot of things and make that the enemy or the scapegoat. But I could say to you, as a wealthy man, they can also target you. And, 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 and actually, they should target me or people like me a lot more. And that's the problem, is they're not targeting hmm. the people that have accumulated all of that wealth yeah. over the last 20 years. I mean, you look what just and – and the U.S. ranks, I think, 55th in terms of wealth disparity in all of the, the developed world. 55th. I mean, it's, and, and this has just mostly happened over the last 20 years. And to me, it's a monetary phenomenon. Yeah. I think what has happened, and I've written about this in the past, is that we created a system, a very corrupt system that eventually, which the financial system, which imploded. And to save the financial system, we had to basically take interest rates to zero and print a lot of money. Who is that money available to? Not the average guy on the street, not the average small business owner that needed to borrow money at the bank. That money was only available to those that didn't need it, those that had enough 
assets to be able to borrow as much as the banks would lend them. And the banks are giving it away because it's free to them. And they can, for, I know lots of very rich people that borrow money at 2%, all they want, 2% interest rates, and go on buy all the assets, the stock market, real estate, art, you name it. And that's what's happened. And that's what's caused what I believe to be the largest transfer of wealth in human history has happened over the last 20 years. Yeah, because you would be, you'd be doing actually better financially in Trump's America, wouldn't you? Me personally? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, with the, with the recent tax cuts, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not the one that needs it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Because but the people who don't need it are actually very happy to have it. I mean, they just, it just keeps loading on. Yeah, because they're completely disconnected to what's going on at the other end. Yeah. You know, it's like the old idea of the, uh, you know, that uh, poverty is alien to most rich people. You know, it's an alien concept. They, you know, they go, if you want dinner, why don't you just ring the bell sort yeah, of thing? You yeah. know, it's, they don't understand what most people have to go through that don't have the means. Yeah. And, it, and that disconnect is getting greater and greater. But, but what I wonder about, though, Frank, is, I mean, I mean you remember those early, you know, we probably had hunger pangs and, you, you know, it was, it was not always easy to put food on the table and all that. What is it about people that makes them forget that? I, I think, you know, and, and again, it's, it, you never want to label an entire class of people because yeah. it's, it's not fair. And there are a lot of people that come from humble means, do well, and then give back. And, you know, but generally people are, moving into two classes in, 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 in Western society, those that have and those that don't. And that's happened over a very long period of time. And it's, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I think that there's just no connection. You just kind of lose any knowledge or idea what that other class, you're not mingling with them. You're not, you're living in different parts of the city. Mm-hmm you know, in different cities completely. And you just, you just don't know your, your generations go by and people just become ignorant of that other class. And the problem is that that class is becoming the large majority of the population. Mm. I was a big fan of the HBO series this season uh, called Succession, which was, it was very obviously, it was a media baron who uh, has four kids who clearly have never had to worry for a moment in their lives mm-hmm. about what they have. And now right. they're kind of confronted with the, with either the loss of their power or the loss of their wealth. And they actually don't want to lose their power. You know, right. they're, they're, you know, they, they don't care how rich they are they're, They know they're going to be rich for the rest of their lives. They don't want to lose power. Yeah. It's that power part. I think that eventually makes people a little bit aware about their early life, isn't it? The, the, if you suddenly feel powerless, even though you've got money. Yeah. Power is a funny thing. You know, it's like, I don't know, there's something about human nature that, you know, power is, is a very important thing. You're absolutely right. I don't know if if it's an issue of l- losing it. You're asking whether th- that you, you the power makes you lose that well, that no, no, it's, it, it's not, you don't have to necessarily make a choice, but, but, uh, in terms of a priority, people will take the power. Oh, oh absolutely. The, the Every wealth. time. Yeah. It's, it's just human nature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I wonder, do you spend time talking to your fellow well-off people and say, wait a minute, we, we give your head a shake here. I try, um, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. Uh, I spent, uh, I remember starting about 10, 12 years ago. When I first made a decision to to become more of a philanthropist and a business person, I thought, well, God, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good salesman. I'll just put me in front of people and I'll, you know, the rich people, and I'll I'll convince them I can. It worked find well. Ways Did it work well? To- oh, not at all. <laughs> and um, you know, unfortunately, people of wealth, uh, most people of wealth, have no connection to those that need it, that need assistance. They have mm-hmm. no connection, and until you have a, uh, uh, an experience that's up close and personal with an issue. And that issue could be health, education, poverty, I don't care, conflict, you know, any of the social issues that exist. Until you are in it and yeah. see it really close, and, it doesn't resonate with you. It's just another one of the world's many issues. And, and I think one of the, the biggest um, things that I try and communicate to rich people is that, you know, it, you know, I point out what's happening with 
wealth. I point out that they're going to die. <laughs> it's, it's the unfortunate thing, and they will not take it with them, and their children only need so much. And then what about the rest? Because the rest, for a lot of people, is a lot of money still. Yeah. And that wouldn't it be nice if they did something that gave their life purpose and, you know, helped the community because it will help the lives of their children and the grandchildren down the line. And I point out to them that um, it, it the decision doesn't have to be, it's not a binary decision. It's not like you have to give up your Gucci's for, um, for uh, a, a burlap, you know, toga and sandals. There's so much that you can do and still live a very wonderful, luxurious life yeah. and still do good. And that, that doing that good is feels good. Yeah. It actually feels good to, to give back. I try and point out all these things and sometimes it resonates. Most often it doesn't, or it resonates for a very short period of time. Yeah. And then it kind of, but, but then, then help me understand this. Like what, what is it about the immense cushion of wealth that then people aren't prepared to trim down to that point? It's identity. It's identity. So, and this is something that I, I kind of figured out a long time ago. It's like, we live in a, in a society that glorifies wealth, glorifies success, and measures it with numbers, okay? Most people attach their identity to their wallet, to the size of their wallet. And they feel, I know I've felt this myself over the years at particular times, like when my wealth, my wealth does a lot of ups and downs because I, I live in a, you know, in an environment, I have a sense your downs are not real downs. No, no, no. But no, there are times when I'm very stressed out, where I've lost a lot of money on some very some. It happens. It happens to every successful person. Times where you're really doubting whether you're going to make it or not. Okay, you could fall apart. When was the last time that was? It it happened four or five years ago. Really? Seriously? Yeah. When the the stock, when the resource market collapsed. Oh yeah. Okay. And you know, I had a lot a lot of my wealth in the resource market. I woke up one morning, it was all gone. Yeah. And I had obligations, and most of those obligations were obligations by my foundation right. to do some things. And all of a sudden, I'm going, "Oh my God, I don't have the ability to carry through on my promises." And I had to really figure that out. But you know, I'm digressing here. But but uh, the 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 but your identity was going to be basically stripped. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and and it's and it's a scary situation when you've attached your entire identity to wealth. So what I try and convince wealthy people to do, I say, listen, make a trade. Attach your identity to your philanthropy. Hmm. It's just, it's even more rewarding. And, and, I, and I try and convince them that really it is way more rewarding when you attach your identity to doing important things on the philanthropic front rather than saying, well, you know, this year, you know, I, I went from, you know, a billion to two billion. I mean, who cares? At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But people do care because that's where they attach. It. Sounds like media have to stop also publishing these Forbes wealthiest I know, lists that, and I know. Uh, Canada's wealthiest I know. and uh, all those lists because they, it's crazy. I, my guess is that people look themselves up. Right? They compete to be on those lists because they measure their self worth by where they rank on that list. However, it's measured, whether it's a Forbes you know, 500 or whether it's, you know, some other magazine article that tells who the most important people are. And, you know, it, it's it's a ridiculous concept because it doesn't focus on, I think the, the best human beings are people that, you know, leave a mark, yeah, make a difference for everybody else. Yeah. Well, that gives us an opportunity to introduce, because I think people often need the enabler to really bring them into this scene of philanthropy. And and uh, my hunch is that Bill Clinton was one of those people for yep, you. definitely. Um, your first meeting with him, I think, was what, 2005? Okay. Somewhere around there? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's, he's already at that point uh, not a president, uh, beginning to build a foundation. Um, what is it about you, you think, that, that attracted him? Because I've heard you talk about what, attracted you to him but yeah what what was it about you that's a really good question um i think and i don't know what's went on inside his own mind but i think that uh we hit it off very quickly and we hit it off in my opinion for two reasons one we had similar interests in books we were reading it just happened to be a conversation all of a sudden i realized he was you realized i was reading a book that he had read and and he was going, why are you in? It was, it was about the Roman Republic. It was about, uh, it was called uh, Crossing the Rubicon. It was about Julius Caesar 
Huh. Uh, in uh, making that decision when it turned from a republic into an empire. And um, and he knew the book, and we started talking. So we go, okay, there's a guy that actually reads, <laughs> you know, because he's an— he's, not, not all politicians do. No, uh, he's an exception to yeah, the rule, yeah. obviously. Um, and the other part was that we had similar backgrounds. I think that was the most important part. When he asked me, right away he asked me about my history, my life, mm. where I came from. Mm. And I told him my life story, and it was quite similar to his in terms of how we grew up in poverty. Although he, you know, he lacked the father figure. He, yeah, and I did too in a sense. My father, although I had a father who was in, in the picture, he was never around. He was always working yeah. in camps, mining camps, building the Micah Dam in Revelstoke. I mean, he was there, the Coquihalla Highway. Hmm. All these things that required blasters and drillers were far away, and we couldn't, as a family, live there. So we, I'd see my father once every three weeks uh, yeah. growing up, and, and it wasn't easy. Hmm. I, I, the, that new saying, you know, someone's at the coal face of something now. Like that's a that's that's like an old mining term, yes. right? But it's, you're at the front line, you're at the coal face. Of totally. It. So, uh, with with Bill Clinton, um, were his priorities your priorities, or did you reshape a bit of each other in that? Well, you know, no, I wouldn't say exactly. He had a, um, a vision of building a foundation post presidency, and I think he did an amazing job, especially in the area of HIV/AIDS. Yeah. Um, where I helped a lot in the early days. Before we started the Clinton Justra initiative in 2007, I spent two years f- putting a lot of my own money and raising money for his HIV AIDS initiative, which was a brilliant way to find, uh, to deliver affordable antiretroviral drugs to the developing world. Yeah. And I, it was, it was it, and so we did that. And, and I think his other big contribution to philanthropy was the Clinton Global Initiative, which really, over a period of 10 years, changed the way by which corporations and big donors looked at philanthropy. It was, re- uh, I, I think that was the most important thing that he did in his post-presidency. But, you know, the <clears throat> the objectives diverge when politics come into it. And, you know, he's a political person, political family, and that was the area they wanted to go in. And, you know, it, it certainly didn't help my <laughs> my relationship with them. But, you know, that's that was their choice, you know. There are very few North American politicians, I feel, who can command a hall the way that Bill Clinton does. Yeah, very few. I mean, like he... he he does these speeches where he starts at a point. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, Frank, I want to mention Frank. I want to talk about all the Frank. And then he goes off and he circles around. And, it comes back. and then he comes back to yeah. it. And then he moves off to another point, right? That's, there's like a, it's almost like a, I, I, I hear that it's, it's something out of like the churches of the South and the way that the sermons came. There's some similarities there. But, you know, I've watched obviously over a period of many, many years traveling all over the world with him. I watched a lot of speeches, yeah. a lot. And, you know, and you'd think that after watching a lot of speeches, you go, you know, I've heard this all before. But he had an amazing ability to surprise us all. Yeah. We'd be sitting in a speech somewhere in some part of the world, and, you know, he starts going down the same path, and then he introduces a whole brand new concept into it. And it's something with a hook. Right. And that hook is just magic. You know, when, and we all... I think we think that he's distracting himself, but there is a. But I don't think he is at all. I think he actually is. He knows oh, exactly. He, tends, he, he, tends, know, he knows where he's going to finish. Yeah, he tends to ramble a bit because he loves to talk. He's a talker, right. and I'm not saying yeah. anything that's not known. But uh, and he does sometimes ramble a bit. You know, he gets into very long conversations because he's a wonk. He's a policy wonk, and yeah. uh, so he gets into these. But he he knows how to he knows how to summarize something and close. Yeah, exactly. So, what's your what is your commitment into that? into the, the, the Clinton Justra Foundation. Well, we created uh, we, the, uh, it was called the Clinton Justra, um, and uh, we've now changed the name to Elevate. Yeah. Um, and it's still in partnership with, with, with the foundation, the Clinton Foundation, although we did announce at the time of the election, the campaign, that we were going to separate. Mm. Because uh, they decided, quite rightly, I think, at the time of the campaign, that they weren't going to do anything internationally. It was just too, too, much, too many potential conflicts. And so, you know, we made that agreement and we're still going through with it. And um, at some point we're going to spin off the initiative with all its current programs around the world into my foundation here in Canada. Mm. And um, it'll be completely separate. 
Because one thing I would imagine he also would have been of great assistance to you in understanding, because he had, I think, a real power in doing this, is the piece that we have glossed over so far, which is the conflict resolution piece. Right. Where, you know, there, there's he has a real geopolitical understanding of how how to bridge some of those he, issues. He does, but my, um, my exposure to the world of conflict didn't come through Bill Clinton. No. It came through the crisis group, which uh. I joined the same year I met Bill Clinton. Okay. I met, I met him in 2005, the same year I joined the crisis group, which is based in Brussels. And it's a conflict resolution and prevention organization. It's the best in the world. It's made up of, you know, 40 or so former heads of state, former foreign ministers, academics, you know, journalists, people that, and from all regions of the world, from all political spectrums, um, people that truly understand conflict and how to resolve conflict. And we have people on the ground, analysts on the ground in almost every, in every conflict zone in, on the planet. And we report from the ground up what's truly going on. We talk to all sides if we can mm -hmm. of, a, of a conflict or a brewing conflict. And we try and find recommend, and we do find recommendations of how to resolve the conflict and, uh, and then we take those recommendations and then we advocate with the right policy decision makers to, to find solutions. And we were very much involved in things like the Colombia government agreement with the FARC. Okay. We played a very big role in yeah. that peace negotiation. Yeah. We played a very big role in the Iran nuclear deal. And so we're taken very seriously, and it's so I, I'm, I've been with that organization 13 years now, and I'm on the board and the executive committee, and and um, it's one of my biggest time consumers is is being part of that organization because I it's it's it is I think such an important organization. I think what we do is needed more and more today than it was you know 13 years ago. Um, and, uh, and I find it interesting. I mean, I, I, well, I've course. always been a student of history, so, you know, history and geopolitics have always been of interest to me. So it's that, that came completely separate. I'm going to give you a chance to, uh, perhaps, uh, beat us up a bit in media, uh, for just a, a minute. It'll only be a minute, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a minute. Um, but on, on the basis of the kind of intelligence that the crisis group develops in understanding what's taking place on the ground, and then what you see in terms of the depiction of that mm -hmm. to the public mm -hmm. in general, how wide is that gap? It's wide. And it's unfortunate because, you know, media is influenced by where that media is based. <laughs> uh, I always used to have a lot of fun. Uh, I shouldn't say fun, but I used to find it really interesting. At the time of uh, around 2003, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, I used to get up in the morning and start with, you know, at one end of the spectrum, Fox News, and at the other end, Al Jazeera, and everything in between, BBC, CBC, CNN, and see how they each reported the same situation, the same event. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you come to realize very quickly that media bias plays a very important role in what we perceive to be the truth. Yeah. And do we ever really get the truth? No, absolutely not. We don't get the truth of what's going on because in every conflict situation, there are two sides of an issue. Mm -hmm. So if you're only being fed one side and it's been shoved down your throat and you don't really understand that there is another side to the issue, there's, you know, there are things that are not reported. Yeah. And, you know, and that comes into play in a very, in a very profound way in what's going on in the Middle East. You know, we're, Unfortunately, there are many sides to the issues there, but we, we don't hear them all through the media. But how worrisome is that for you? Because here, here you are attempting to bring um, some solutions or at least some progress to parts of the world. Uh, you're attempting to do that, you, but you often have to almost penetrate a bit of the fog around public policy that the public might apprehend. Uh, and media are part of that. Uh, how how worrisome is it that we have, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, almost a polarizing media in parts of our world that don't particularly help the situation? Well, you know, first you have to understand that media is not a service; it's a business. <laughs> and once you understand that, then you then you have to just understand where that media is, 
who influences that media. And money plays a very big role in all of this. Yeah. This, you know, it's something that people don't like to talk about, but it it does. And it does influence what the media reports. And you know, if you look what's happening in the US today, I mean, I'll take it one step further. Um, you know, after uh, Citizens United, the case which basically allowed for the creation of super PACs, PACs yeah. that to me was the turning point in American history. And it's certainly the turning point in the political system and the way that the political system works. And so what's happening is that now uh, policy decisions are made for the purposes of the highest bidder, if you want to put it in very crude terms. And so, you know, this is where you get coverage that's not accurate because it, it's only serving the interests of a certain class. And yeah. I hate to sound, you know, so alarmist, but you, you watch it, it's happening. And, and, it's, and it's sad. You do see um, an interesting pendulum swinging back to some degree, though, uh, since Donald Trump has come to power, where uh, organizations that are deemed to be responsible purveyors of media um, are actually starting to benefit. You know, the New York Times has never had more subscribers. The Washington Post is now larger than the New York Times online. It's made a, a pretty yep. fast commitment into this field. Um, you have foundation money that is working its way into organizations in the United States as almost a, a rearguard action in order to try to, you know, paper over some of the problems in yeah. the business models for media and all that. In this country, not so much so. I mean, are we a little complacent about what might happen here? You know, do, do we, well, we don't have the – our problems that are not, are not as profound as the problems that are having south of the border. Right. The division's not the same. I mean, we have divisions in this country, but they're not nearly. I mean, you're going to have, in any country, in any society, you're going to have different opinions about, you know, what type of policies to implement for whose benefit, you know, and it's always a tug of war between, you know, <laughs> taxes, lower taxes, higher taxes, social services, all these things. You can have that everywhere. But those are those are debates that you think are far more acceptable than the debates that are taking place below. Oh, abso yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not, and we're not even close. Hmm. Not even close. I mean, the, what's happening south of the border, I think, is very dangerous. Yeah, it's a very dangerous time for America. And I think that you know these midterm elections that are coming up are probably the most important elections in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. And of course, they say that with every election. No, but, no, no, no. But, but they, case, I know they say that, but yeah. no, but this time it's actually true. The outcome of the midterms will determine a lot about the future of America. Hmm. And I think, and, you know, I don't want to make light of this point, but, you know, this is going to be, depending on what you believe is important, these midterm elections are going to be the biggest IQ test and or morality test that America's ever faced. Hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see what, what the people choose yeah. to do about what's happening. I asked you earlier whether you think America is almost too far gone, but do you think that America can truly walk back what it has spoken in the last couple of years, I, I even, think, even in a midterm? I, I think that the, you can't walk it all back, but you can certainly stop it from getting worse. You know, it's going in a direction right now because it's the way it's being led by the Republican Because Republican you must Party. believe that Donald Trump could get reelected. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I really do believe that he could. Yeah. And I believe that the Republicans can win the midterms. And, you know, everybody's predicting it this blue wave. It, it may, may not happen. Yeah. And so, you know, the, we've learned very quickly that you can't trust the polls anyway. You don't know what's going to happen. Who's going to stay home? Who's going to vote? Um, but I, I honestly think that... Um, unfortunately, the political system is broken. Hmm. You've got a system, you know, and I've talked to already about the, you know, the Citizens United and how that changed the you game. You don't have a Supreme Court that's going to overturn that. And that's not, that's cer certainly not going to no, happen. not now. Um, but more so, you've got a political system where you have an election every two years and you're campaigning two years in advance. So you're in a, comp you're always in a continuous 24-7 campaign cycle and you can't get anything done in terms of implementing policy without with a system that doesn't allow that to happen. Yeah. The fixes that are required are long-term infrastru infrastructural fixes with education and all sorts of things. Who's going to, you know, you almost need a 10-year mandate for someone to say, okay, we're going to fix this country. 
And there's so many things that need to be fixed. And yeah. I just don't think that the system is set up to allow that to happen. Yeah. You talked earlier about the Citizens United case and, of course, the super PACs and the rise of them and the bidding uh, for politics almost to uh, the way that it engenders that. And I've noticed that there are some Democrat candidates that are starting to say, well, I won't take PAC money. Do you think they're tying one hand behind their back all of a sudden? There are a lot of people that say a lot of things and then change their minds in the campaign. Um, you know, yeah, it's, I don't know if they have any choice <laughs> right? but to accept, unless you change the rules for, every, for everybody. Yeah. So, and I know I, I hear the ones that talk about, about not accepting super PAC money. I, I just don't know how you, how you win a grassroots campaign anymore. You know, just, you know, with just grassroots donations, yeah. you know, when you have billions, literally billions being poured In, into. Even to one race. Into one race. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you've got, and you've got it on both sides. You yeah. know, you saw what Bloomberg announced, he was going to put $80 million into reelecting Democrats. And, you know, and on the other side, you've got a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Writing yeah. big checks. In the time we've got left, because you've been very generous with your time today. Um <laughs> Map out, you know, you, you're, you're somebody who is highly strategic around all of this. Um, is there an emerging area that you're beginning to get interested in that you think might, might be the, the next phase of your benevolence here? Benevolence or business? Oh, if you want to give us a business tip, no, that'd no, be no, great. No, yeah. no, no. Well, but, we'll take no, those no, no, right no, away. No, yeah, no. <laughs> I could spend another hour talking about that, but um, no, but in terms of the philanthropic part of my life, which is, yeah. really most of what I do, I have one overriding mission. And I think it's, it's, it's certainly shaped almost every initiative that I've gotten into in the last 10 years, 10, 12 years. That is that I want my foundation to select issues, identify issues, that where we can come in and do something differently, create a new model, do fix that issue in an efficient way with less money than is being thrown at it currently and in a sustainable way. And we did that, as we mentioned earlier, with the street to home mm -hmm. approach to homelessness. I've done it with poverty alleviation models in uh, Latin America and, and other parts of the world with respect to creating jobs that didn't exist by building these social enterprises. So that was a new model that took us years and a lot of money to create. And, sir, and on the refugee stuff, we're doing stuff that's novel every day. You know, the, uh, taking the Canadian uh, uh, private refugee sponsorship model and exporting that to other countries around the world. That's one of our initiatives that we're doing with the Canadian government and UNHCR and uh, Open Society. We're uh, the Ascend initiative, which I've launched in Greece in partnership with Coca-Cola and Ikea and others, uh, is basically recognize that the local NGOs that fix most of the problems in when, when they arise, and this was is with respect to refugees, are way more effective, more efficient, can get stuff done, know the landscape, much more so the international organizations that parachute in and try and fix the problems. So what the Ascend Initiative was all about was bringing a collaborative of players that could work with local nonprofit groups that are already doing great work and making sure that they're properly funded and that we give them innovative ideas of how to make, make it efficient in the long term. Only less than 2% of all of the international aid goes to local organizations. Most of it goes to the big players. Yeah. And there's so much inefficiency there. Right, right. So yeah. that that is the overriding objective of so my you've foundation. Got a, you've got a essentially a Frank Joostra model. It's a model, yeah. It's, it's, it's fixing, finding novel ways to fix old problems, yeah. <laughs> problems that have been around for a long time. All right, so I've got a last question. Um, let me try to frame it in the right way. What's the, what's the one thing you think you did right early that you would recommend to everybody? Now we're talking business. Or are we... So, yeah, okay. go ahead. Um, again, I get asked these questions in many different ways, but I, and I always try, because you can't pinpoint, when you look back on your life, you can't pinpoint any one thing that is the secret sauce. But I, generally speaking, fearlessness, 
Okay. Yeah. And if you either, I've heard you, you say you, you, I've heard you say you jump out of a plane. I do. I've did, You've you, done it. Halo jumps, which is from thirty thousand feet. Yeah. Um, Good luck on that. You know, it's fine, but but that's not it. But that's not the fearlessness that I'm talking about. I'm talking about not being afraid that you're going to try something and fail, and that's what holds back most people is the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always go back to a great line that Steve Jobs had about that when he gave his commencement speech at Stanford University. He basically said, you know. Why be afraid of failure? You're already naked. You're going to die. You're already naked. Go for it. You know, who cares if you fail? And I think if you have that, if that, that's part of your DNA. And I, you, can't, you can't fake that. You're, but is that, that is DNA. That almost. is DNA. I, mean, you, I you, think you, it's you DNA. Can, can, but you can, you can work at the edges of it. You can work at the edges of it, but you're either fearless or you're not. And I think once you overcome fear, then there's no limit to what you can do because you're going to go, well, and I've been told my entire life, every time I've embarked on something that's new, it's usually the people that hide in the safety and the comfort of, of, of the status quo that will object to what you're doing because they go, no, you can't be done. And I was, so many things I, were, I was told it can't be done. I actually have a little sign on the edge of my desk saying it can be done. And, and I truly believe that because I was go, well, why can't it be done? And because it's not, and the answer is usually because that's not the way it's done. So what? <laughs> Change it. And I've had lots and lots of successes in life by just using that philosophy of, yeah, just change it you know try something new take a risk but doesn't isn't the corollary of that though some regret along the way yeah lots of regret there are lots of moments at three o'clock in the morning when you're staring at the ceiling cursing yourself that you made the dumbest move on the planet you dug yourself into a hole you know we talked about this earlier you, you don't think successful rich people have moments where they're in self-doubt where they f- fear that they've co- colossally screwed up it happens all the time. You should read this. Uh, there's a great book, uh, Elon Musk's story. Oh, yeah? Read that book. I mean, <laughs> there is literally a moment that I identified with. Well, he seems with. to be replaying that every couple yeah, of weeks. No, yeah, no, but I'm saying that here's a guy that's achieved a lot, whatever you yeah. think of him. He's achieved a lot. And so there was a moment that I had that I could relate to, and he was talking to like 3 o'clock in the morning in, in, in bed and having the cold sweats and trembling because you realize that you are, you know, you've – you can't figure out how to get out of a certain mess that you've created for yourself and you have to power through. Yeah. It's not, it's not always easy. We had somebody on our radio show, uh, it was talking about meeting Elon Musk in 2008 where he was completely down, like absolutely out of money, no money for SpaceX and stuff. And the guy said, well, what do you have in the mind? He says, well, I've got this car idea <laughs> and, uh, and he's, and you know, I really want to do this. And he's, and the guy said, well, how much, how much are you going to, how much do these cars cost? And he said, uh, uh, 50,000 bucks. And so we went home and wrote a check for a hundred thousand dollars to him and, to, and got the first two Teslas off it. You know, they're that kind of fearlessness, I guess, yep. eventually came back to him. Maybe you look at that. I mean, look, look at what Steve Jobs did, you know, that was, you know, his, his whole approach was doing something completely different than what people, and people used to poo poo him, you know, it's like, you'll, you'll never pull it off. Yeah. Those are the people I admire, people that really take risks. Yeah. And I think those, that risk approach, I mean, it has to be intelligently thought through, but you have to take a risk and you have to be prepared to occasionally fail. In your business life, in your philanthropic life, is there more fearlessness in one or the other? Uh, I, I take way more risks in business, but that's my nature. And that's just because I'm an entrepreneur and I love trying new ideas sometimes they work and sometimes they don't yeah. but you know and sometimes you have to spend a bunch of years trying to fix a mess that you created <laughs> yeah seems like you've done pretty well I've done okay thanks a lot for your time it's okay. been great talking thank to you, you. hope you great. enjoyed it yeah i have thank All you right. it's the biv interview and i'm kirk lapointe we'll see you next time <laughs>